I want to ask a question. What difference or what impact can a song make? I want to tell you that as a 50-plus-year-old musician, I'm so excited that God has used a couple 50-year-old-plus musicians that have written, composed songs in the prime of their life and become actually famous doing that around a singular word, hallelujah. Some of you are familiar with the Jewish pop song writer, Leonard Cohen, who, as the story goes, in 1984, he's in his New York City apartment with notebooks spread around him as he's trying to meet a deadline and determine which of the 80 versions of the song he's been working on over the past five years, in which of the 70 verses that he's composed, he's going to choose from among to be in his song, Hallelujah. Well, as it's published and recorded, it's placed on the B side of a single, which means expectations are low, and sure enough, the song gets buried for about 10 years until it's recorded by Jeff Buckley who does a cover of it and makes it an overnight sensation. And then the song is featured in movies like Shrek and in TV shows like ER and The West Wing and it becomes a sensation. And his, uh, Leonard Cohen's live in London official version YouTube has been viewed now 200 million times. Talk about moving from obscurity to uh, fame, and the Pentatonix version of it, which is even better, has been viewed 650 million times just on YouTube alone. I don't know what the Spotify or iTunes count are, but uh, wow. Now, if we back up two and a half centuries before that, we have an even more famous composer, the German Christian classical composer, George Friedrich Handel, who has written the most famous work of all time, arguably, but get this, before he wrote that, he was looking at debtor's prison. Couldn't pay his debts as an over 50-year-old musician. And he comes across this English libretto, this text of words of Jesus' life, words from scripture, and he decides to take a career risk to write a sacred oratorio of which the only languages permissible worthy of doing that were considered to be Italian and German. And as a German composer living in England, he decides to take this risk of composing to lyrics set in the vulgar language of English and the risk ends up paying off, but he is so taken with the words of Christ and the scriptures that the first section that we know as the Christmas section, he writes in six days the prophecies and the birth of Jesus Christ. The second section, which is about his suffering and death, he writes in nine days, and he spends another six days on part three, which is the resurrection. He orchestrates the entire thing in two days. This is a two-hour oratorio. And the whole published work, 259 pages, is completed in 24 days. It stands unique as the most impressive, overwhelmingly incredible uh, composing work of art in the history of composition, I think. And Orchestras and choirs all over the world continue to perform it nearly 300 years later, including our own Nate Brown last weekend with a Pacific Chorale. Uh, Hopefully many of you have had a chance to sing parts of it or to participate in it or to at least 
observe a, a performance of it, at least the Christmas section, of which the Hallelujah Chorus finishes that first uh, Christmas section and is probably the most famous choral song in the world. Um, what impact can a song make? In our current series, we're looking at four biblical songs captured by Luke who recorded the lyrics in his first two chapters of his gospel. Luke 2 is the nativity story, and we're gonna be in that today. It includes the third Christmas song, which is the angels song. Now, at first glance, there's not much to it. It's kind of a short little ditty. Um, by contrast, Derek got to preach Mary's song, 10 verses. Robert gave himself Zechariah's song, 12 verses. There's a lot of thematic development, There's pretty substantial lyrical development going on in those. Even next week we get four verses from Simeon. But I got the angel song that has, it has, according to Luke, one verse. As a song, it's a two-line chorus. I feel a little bit ripped off here. But do you realize most of the songs that are in the Bible are short. Most of the songs, particularly that the angels sing, don't have very many lyrics to them. Maybe they've got short attention spans, I don't know. Uh, but consider what words they are. Like Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Well, with words like that, you don't need many more. You can keep singing those over and over. Or Revelation 5, Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Like Pentecostals, those angels keep that riff going for hours. Uh, now, often these biblical songs, they're, they're single sentences sung over and over and over. And sometimes there have been people known to complain about repetitive lyrics. Not here, fortunately, right? Uh, but at other churches, some have perhaps spuriously claimed to coin the phrase 7-Eleven songs, seven words sung 11 times, as if that would ever happen, right? Or if it did happen, as if that would be a problem. What are the words? Well, think about the most famous hymn, the most famous Christian song for five decades from the mid-50s through the early 2000s, How Great Thou Art. Well, you get to the chorus, four words, How Great Thou Art, repeat it, and then repeat the duo again four times, four stanzas. 16 times you're saying four words. It's not a 7-Eleven song, it's a 416 song. Now think about that hallelujah chorus. Do you realize hallelujah is sang 167 times? It's a one, 167 song. Um, and then Revelation 4, 8, the living creatures sing one chorus. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. 16 words. And it says they never cease singing. That's a 16 eternity song. Um, maybe repetition isn't such a bad thing. Maybe repetition is a biblical thing. Maybe it's actually the heart that matters. And when a heart is absorbed and taken in by the glory of God and his character, 
Sometimes lingering is the most godly thing we can do, to linger in that territory and continue to adore our God. So the shepherds and the angels, Joseph and Mary, you're gonna get introduced here. This, uh, this story is in three seven-verse movements, one to seven, eight to 14, 15 to 21. We're gonna focus this morning on the middle section where the song is, and the question before us is, what impact can the angel's song make in my life this Christmas season? What impact can their, make, their song make in my life? I want you to take out your Bibles if you've got one and turn to Luke chapter two. We're gonna read it. I'm gonna read it verse, uh, all the way through, verses uh, one through 21. <clears throat> in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration where Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went out to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, and this is the song, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. I wanna make a few observations of key people and words in the first seven verses of the setup. In verse one, it mentions Caesar Augustus. Now, his name wasn't mentioned merely to establish the general time frame, but rather for the expected visceral response that that would bring to the Jewish hearers. This would be much like later 20th century Jews hearing from, say, Warsaw, Poland, hearing about Hitler and the Third Reich does more than date a scenario. It just makes blood begin to boil a bit. Augustus was known as Octavian. 
He was the first emperor of Rome, and he ruled for 41 years unopposed. Now, his great uncle was Julius Caesar, and he was sometimes called the god of the state of Rome. So Octavian was then often called the son of God. He was the founder of the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, but much like Hitler and Stalin, he knew that the way to establish lasting peace is to rule with utter brutality and to destroy all of your rivals. So at 19 years old, he joined Mark Antony to defeat Brutus and Cassius, who had taken out Julius Caesar. And then 12 years later, he turned on Antony and defeated Antony and Cleopatra, establishing his path to rule and to reign unopposed. And his human history was later written after his death, rewritten as mythological legend, placing him as a son of Zeus. So he was rendered variously as God or as son of God, as savior, as the one bringing peace. And all of this is spurious, all of this is fraudulent. But that was part of the mythology of the day into which Jesus was born and the culture into which he came. So Jesus comes into this Roman world dominated by powers, by making, by deifying of leaders where there's false power, there's false peace, there's false son of God. And Jesus comes as the reality. He's born in humility and he's coming as the true son of God, the true prince of peace, the genuine savior of men. Now in verses four to six, Joseph is introduced and he's making this journey from Nazareth, which is up north in the Galilee region, about 80 miles away, and he's coming down into the Judea region where Bethlehem is, near Jerusalem. And he's coming down because that's his uh, ancestral hometown. And he's betrothed to Mary, and we understand that to mean that they'd had an arranged marriage that had not yet been consummated, and marriages in those days were often done in two steps. There was the marriage contract, and then there was a waiting time, and a time to get a Ferris order and a household established and a home to be in, and then there would be the cohabitation, and they were not yet cohabitating, but they were technically um, married or at least betrothed. Now, while in Bethlehem, she eventually gives birth And this is where we have some gaps in our common folklore. Likely she didn't give birth the very night that they arrived. We don't know if she rode on a donkey or not. We don't know if there were animals surrounding the manger. We don't know that an innkeeper actually turned her away. One thing we do know though is that The city of David is called Bethlehem here, or I should say it the other way, Bethlehem is called the city of David, and that's actually a really big deal. In fact, it's an odd thing, it's kind of fascinating, and a little bit gets us into some nerdy territory actually, but if you can ride with me for a minute, um, in the Old Testament, the city of David is referenced 40 times, and 100% of the time, it refers to Jerusalem. Now historically, backing up about a thousand years, David defeated Canaanites on a hill that they had called Zion, 
and he overtook that, and he claimed that as his city, kept the name, but then began to call it after himself as the city of David, built his palace there. And the larger city, Jerusalem, was built and extended west from there over years to come. So the city of David was always associated with Jerusalem. David's son Solomon built the temple that was there next to the city of David in the heart of Jerusalem. And so throughout the Old Testament, it refers to the city of David as Zion or as Jerusalem consistently. So what in the world is Luke doing here calling Bethlehem the city of David? Well, it's worth questioning. Um, See, If we fast forward a thousand years from David's era, consider what Jerusalem had now become associated with. It was no longer associated with David. That had been smeared over by the Roman occupation. In fact, King Herod had been placed over them, and he's a non-Jew, but he destroyed the temple and replaced it, built it bigger and better for his legacy, not to glorify God, but to make a name for himself and to establish his role and title as the king of the Jews. So Luke is making a rival political claim here against the current leaders in Jerusalem. They are imposters. They are not from the spiritual lineage of King David. He came from Bethlehem, which was then a small, almost unknown town, much like Jesus would be raised in Nazareth, let's say a small cow town in underrated Galilee. So just as David became God's anointed, Luke is identifying Jesus as God's anointed one, connecting his, his lineage to the man after God's own heart. So Jesus would be the true descendant of David. Jesus would be the true son of God. He would be the true prince of peace and the genuine king of the Jews. He would be the true heir to the Jerusalem that is above. Now, we come to verse seven and Think of what we would expect if we were telling a story about royalty being presented to the world. When I think about it, I kind of think about how Robin Williams introduced as the genie Prince Ali in the original Aladdin. Remember the animated version? Uh, all this pomp and circumstance and elephants and horns and you know, we're going to let the world know that the king of the ages is here. And yet... God rarely does things the way we would do things. His plans and his outworkings are almost always the opposite instincts of what we have. And so by contrast, he shows up in in obscurity. The Son of God is laid in a manger, in a feeding trough, probably not in a motel, probably in a house. Some of you have been to Israel and you've been able to see what these first century houses were like, generally in three compartments. The largest is the living area where the family stays, and then a second compartment, which is the guest room, fully walled off, but external entrances in all three rooms. And then there's the room for the animals that are part of your livelihood. And so there's a half wall with an external entrance, but with a half wall, you can, you can feed the animals. Um, when weather is bad. And so it's possible that most, most likely, in fact, that, that it was a house that had guests 
and part of Middle Eastern hospitality was to provide for them where they had access to the main room, access to water, access to care, and even a bit of cover for concerns about potential promiscuity. Um, it might not have been such a bad thing that they ended up in the manger area with the perfect bed for a baby. But we're gonna come to this main section now, verses eight to 14, and Handel used six of these seven verses in his Messiah. We're gonna see here the shepherds, they're the first that are introduced here in verse, uh, verse eight. They're, they're out in their fields keeping watch by flock, keep, keeping watch of their flocks by night. So fascinating that lowly shepherds are the first witnesses to the glory of God here. They're from the lowest echelon of society. They are sheep herders. They're marginalized. They are noted for their humble stature in life. Um, they're awake at night. They're out with the animals. And in contrast to the lowliest of humans come the highest, most exalted of heavenly beings to announce to them the birth of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord is the one who comes representing God himself, shining with the glory of God and they experience great fear, no surprise there, but they're told to replace that great fear with great joy. Look at verses 10 to 11, I wanna read, this is the message here. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold I bring to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior who is Christ, the Lord. That's the message. Notice, this is good news, bringing great joy to all people. Not to just those who are in power, not to just landowners or those who are influential, or those who have bought their way in, or those who have prestige or great wisdom. It's for all people, including the lowly, including the weak, including the poor, including the marginalized, including those who have to fend off predators at night to save stinky sheep. This child will be born unto you. This child will be born to you, to each of us. Jesus will be offered for all who will receive him. His identity, sometimes there have been debates. Is Jesus savior? or is he Lord? I can remember, remember many years ago when there was a polarizing debate within evangelicalism. Is he Savior, is he Lord? And I read all of the books, was in a lot of discussion groups, and a lot of debate, a lot of arguments until we finally realized this is a false choice. Notice how Luke describes the angel's announcement and helps us move beyond arguing to embracing God's remarkable provision of who Jesus is. There's three descriptions here of Jesus. Two are titles, one is a function. First, Jesus is the Christ. This is the Greek term for Messiah. He's the fulfillment of messianic expectation. He's the anointed one of God. He's the promised one who will reign on the true heavenly throne of David over the, fulfillment, the fullness of God's kingdom. He's the one who will be the who has come as the fulfillment of the Genesis 3 promise that he would crush the head of the serpent while himself being wounded. 
Um, he will be the sacrificed lamb of God. Jesus is not just the Christ, Jesus is the Lord. This speaks of his authority. As master, sure, but more than that, he is the Lord. He comes as Yahweh. According to John 1, he comes as the living word of God bearing human flesh, and he comes in the authority of Yahweh himself. Jesus is the Lord. And Jesus, who is Christ, Jesus, who is the Lord, is born and he arrives for a purpose, and that's to become our Savior. As Lord, as Messiah, he's coming to save people, to save people from God's wrath and to save people for God's purposes. Jesus will be the deliverer. He's gonna provide spiritual salvation to all who trust in him. So who who is Luke introducing Jesus to be? Well, he's the Lord God. He's the fulfillment of all messianic promises, and he's coming in the role of savior for the mission of rescuing God's people and expanding the kingdom of God to include the nations. And that's our heritage, and that's our invitation of participation. And how will the shepherds find this awesome God-man? Well, he's the just-been-born infant in Bethlehem, laying in a manger, wrapped in the cloths usually used to wrap baby lambs. Look at verses 13 and 14. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Now, this is the angelic response to the message. The message was verses 10 and 11. This is the worship response. This is the worship song responding to the message. So this first angel, he's joined now by a military army of angels, this angelic host, this militarized angelic choir, if you will. And this angelic choral army has this twofold mission. One is to declare the praise of God, glory to God in the highest heaven. And the second is to announce access to peace with God and that's available on earth. So as with Revelation four and five, this is a glimpse into heavenly praise, and we see that those who are closest to God and to the Lamb, those who know him most fully, are the most enamored with him, the most, the most prone to praise unendingly. Um, they announce the good news of the benefits that God's presence brings, and in this case, it's good news, it's great joy, and it's a reign of peace being offered. Tim Mackey of the Bible Project, I think, has been enormously helpful to uh, popularize um, that sometimes we get pairings wrong. We have been sometimes taught to pair heaven and hell as counterparts, as, if, as, as destinies, which is true, but it's not the biblical emphasis. Over and over and over and over, the Bible pairs heaven with earth as dwelling places. The dwelling place of God and the heavenly beings in the heavenly realms, and the dwelling place of man, humanity on earth. 
And the goal is that as things are in heaven, they will become increasingly on earth. The fulfillment of the, prayer, the Lord's prayer as he prays, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So the angelic host here is celebrating that into this world of warfare is going to come the very peace of God. Peace will be available. Into this world of fraudulent pretenders is arriving Jesus as the true son of God, the true prince of peace, the savior of of mankind. So the host of angels in their song, in their acclamation, they're describing some concurrent realities here. Glory to God in the highest is a statement of truth. This is factual reality. In the heavenly realm where everything is as it should be, God is glorified. God is above all. In the highest places, he is glorified as he rightly ought to be. And now there's this announcement that there's this opportunity for him to now be glorified more fully than he has ever been on earth. This reality is coming to earth through Christ the Lord. And now he brings the peace of the reign of heaven. He's making the peace of God accessible to people on the earth. This is the shalom of God being announced to humanity through the child who was just born. This is the fulfillment moment. This is the fullness of time that was promised. This era of Christ coming, Christ coming for the purpose of dying and securing our salvation. This is the time that the ancient prophets foretold and and wrote about. And just a word about angels, sometimes European artists and Hollywood and cartoon drawers have not been so helpful in our visual conceptions of angels. Sometimes we've gotten views of angels that look like like this, this little cherub, or like this, remember Roma? Or like this, remember Clarence? And these are not accurate biblical portrayals of actual angels. When angels are described in the Bible, like the seraphim and the cherubim. They're described in unimaginable um, glory. Uh, Six wings flying, covering their eyes, singing and shaking the rafters. It's interesting that the first thing that everybody says when they ever encounter an angel I'm sorry, let me say it this way. The first thing that an angel says every time they speak to a person is, fear not, right? Because they are such fearsome creatures that the natural thing is to be afraid and they have to be told that no, they come with a message from God and they're trustworthy. Don't be afraid because everything about them looks fearsome. Uh, Think of the territorial angels in Daniel that uh, Michael is a chief archangel there and he's warring against demonic principalities for the souls of people in geographical territories. And Paul says similarly in the New Testament that we are not battling against flesh and blood. Behind the people who oppose Christ and oppose Christianity are principalities and our battles are actually with them, not the people who are held hostage by them, not the people who've been deceived by them. We are to love them. It's the principalities that we battle, the demonic forces, and praise God, we have fearsome angelic beings on our side doing the battle behind the scenes for us. 
One of their weapons is declaring truth. I want to say a word about singing. Think about all of the competing voices on earth, all of the proclaimers of headlines and those who announce things that are supposedly important, important to know, must know news or headline news. So here, angel messengers are coming down from heaven. Talk about the perfect, ideal, bird's eye, unbiased view to announce the headline of the ages. It's an angelic army choir singing or acclaiming loud, full-bodied, thunderous voices proclaiming two things, the praise of God and the declaration of gospel. So when we sing praise of Jesus, we literally join that heavenly army in singing truth of God. Have you thought of that before? This is what they do. John opens for us a glimpse into heavenly realities in Revelation 4 and 5. We get a little bit more in Revelation 7 and Revelation 19. Around the throne, angels, elders, heavenly beings, so consumed with the adoration of God that they are singing his praises and declaring his gospel. We get to enact that here. Every Sunday that we gather is a microcosm enactment of heavenly worship realities. Do you realize that? We have the privilege of joining the angelic choirs and singing alongside them. They're part of the cloud of witnesses to who Christ is. Some of you have not found yet your voice for singing. Hear me, I'm not saying that as critique. I'm saying that as hope that there is still time, okay? Some of us have not yet found our voice for prayer or for confession or for sharing the gospel. But as part of our discipleship, it would be good if we find our voice for those things and if we develop a voice for sharing our faith, for praying, for interceding, for confessing, for praising, for singing. There is still time. Some of you weren't raised in Christian homes. Some of you didn't have your parents sing to you. Some of you never got comfortable with your singing voice in childhood, and so you come into adulthood and it's like, I, I don't sound like the radio, that's one thing I know. And people look at me funny, and I'm not comfortable singing. Not everyone sounds like Nate, or like Dana, or like others. But it's your song, and it's your opportunity to participate in your praise. It's a matter of your worship and an opportunity to join the angels. And I wanna encourage you that it's not too late. It's not too late to develop making a joyful noise that will get better and better. And do it with exuberance. Do it with all the strength that God has given you. Um, Parents, one of the best gifts that you can give to your children is to sing to them and with them regularly. And there's no season better than Christmas time to do that, to sing carols throughout this season. And particularly, I encourage you at Christmas Eve or on Christmas Day as you gather for presents and for other festivities to include singing some Christmas carols. Ask the children what their favorite is. Sing a cappella, turn on Spotify, pull out, a, pull out the guitar from the closet, 
Um, make a joyful noise. Sing to the Lord. Sing with your kids. I want to take a closer look at the second half of the angel's song here. The traditional rendering has been on earth peace and goodwill to men or goodwill toward men, which raises the question, does God merely bring his peace to peaceable men? Does God want nice people to extend goodwill to one another? Is that the intention here? Well, this rendering has been found to be misleading and probably not the original intent, even as common as it is with our songs and with King James readers. The problem is a single Greek letter, a sigma, that is missing from the majority of the later manuscripts, but the oldest and the most reliable Greek manuscripts have this sigma, and what it does is it changes the case of a verb into the genitive form. What does this mean for English, Craig? For English, it means that it's not men of good favor, it's the favor possessed by God, the favor or the goodwill belonging to God, the peace coming from God toward people. So this changes things. It means God will bring peace to those who have his favor. The pleasure or goodwill is God. It's his disposition toward us. So newer translations, newer Bible versions will have this rendering like the ESV, on earth peace among those on whom his favor rests, or on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased, or on earth peace among those he favors. So in other words, the promise is offered to those with whom God has pleasure, which raises a really important question for us. Who pleases God? On whom does his pleasure rest? What's the criteria by which we receive the pleasure of God? How do we know if we're in that group which is included in God's pleasure? Personally, how can I know if God is pleased with me? We actually have to go outside this text to answer that, and the bullseye answer to the question, who is God pleased with? God is pleased with Christ and all those who are in him. Who does God find pleasure in? In Christ, his son, and all who have faith in him. I wanna see this, show this in three different ways. One is looking back prophetically, back to Psalm 5, verse 11 and 12. And let all who hope in you be glad, for forever they will rejoice, and you will encamp among them, and those who love your name will boast in you because you will bless the righteous, O Lord. You crowned us with a shield of favor. And we see this as we work backwards through this. Who has the shield of favor from God? Well, it's the righteous whom God is blessing. Who are the righteous? Well, it's those who love God's name. And to them, God encamps among them. And they're rejoicing because they are hoping in God. We look concurrently at Luke 1.50. This is the prior chapter in Mary's song. And she writes, and his mercy is for those who revere him from generation to generation. Who are the recipients of God's mercy? It's those who fear him, those who revere him, those who trust in him. We look forward 
to Paul's theologizing on the gospel, Romans 5. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Who has peace with God? Those who have been justified by faith in him, in Christ. So Jesus himself is the chosen one of God, the one whom the Father loves, and then God loves and finds pleasure in all who are in Christ Jesus. We are placed into Christ Jesus by the Spirit of God when we receive Jesus by faith. And if we trust in Christ, then we have God's peace. We are literally reconciled to God and we can experience God's favor and we have become part of God's family. We've become the children of God. So Jesus is announced to have become a savior and the angel's song is a salvation invitation. We'll come back to this. Briefly, verses 14 to 20, this section wraps up the story, wraps up the characters' responses. So the shepherds, they go to Bethlehem, they find Jesus just as they were told, and then they go back to the fields having responded to the angels and to Christ, and they return praising God for all that they have seen all that they have heard. And then Mary, she treasures these things and she ponders them in her heart. And we arrive at verse 21, in the final verse, the baby is named Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived. In Hebrew, his name would have been Yeshua, short for Yahashua, which probably reminds you of the name Joshua, which means Yahweh is salvation, or Yahweh who saves. That's literally the name of the Son, who in anglicized, in English, we call Jesus. His name literally means God has come to save. So what difference can the angel song make in your life? Well, it's an invitation to you that God has come to bring his, let me say it this way, Jesus has come to bring God's glory to the earth and to bring his peace to those who have his favor. How do we become recipients of God's favor? When we receive Christ, we gain God's favor. When we trust in Christ, we gain access to his peace, peace with God, internal peace, eternal peace peace. And on the other hand, when we reject God, recognize we are rejecting his peace plan, his only peace plan. I've had some interaction online with some atheists this week. Their hostility is high. Their hate for the church runs deep. And their anger at Christians and their refusal to accept and respond to God is strong and is high. What they don't realize is rather than lining up with the angelic choirs of heaven, they're lining up with the demonic forces, with the principalities of evil against the Son of God that God himself has provided for us as the only peace plan. And our responses can be the same as the shepherds. They're outgoing, they're joyful, they're filled with joy and they're telling everybody what they've seen and heard. Or it could be a little more internal, deep introverted like Mary, treasuring and pondering the deep things of God in her heart. 
But God has invited us to join the angel's song and to celebrate his birth and respond to it. I wanna say if you have not received the Lord Jesus as your Prince of Peace, I wanna urge you to take seriously this Christmas season who he is, what he has come for, and how you might need him. Maybe this is the Christmas that you say yes to God. Maybe this is the Christmas that you say, I want to know that I'm reconciled to God, that I have peace in my relationship with God. Have you experienced his peace? Have you experienced his favor? For those of us who know that we have received Christ, we have walked with him, we have experienced his favor, we have enjoyed his peace, I wanna urge you to take advantage of this Christmas season, this Advent season. Maybe like me, this is just a really busy time. My story is, you know what, I can be so busy preparing to preach, preparing music behind the scenes for the season, putting lights on the house, doing things. I can literally be so focused on doing Christmas stuff or stuff for God or stuff for the church that I could miss Jesus. Can you believe that? Yeah, that can happen. And I imagine it could probably happen in your world too, just the details are different. We can be so focused on the festivities of Christmas that we run the risk of missing engaging Christ. So I wanna encourage you to do what I have had to tell myself to do multiple times in the last couple weeks is Craig, stop, take a break, reopen God's word, reread the Christmas story and ponder things, Craig, in your heart. Craig, don't just rehearse the music, don't just work on tracks, listen to the words and engage them, worship Christ through these words, through these songs and pray for a refreshed heart by the Spirit's kindness in this, in, this, uh, in this time as we prepare for Christmas. You may be feeling a, a distance from God. This may be a difficult time for you and God may have something in that. He may be weaning you from something. He may be putting your lusts and your other loves against Christ and saying, which is it gonna be? As we close, I wanna, I wanna ask you to close your eyes as we ponder this question in various forms. What impact can a song make on me? And I'm just gonna ask a series of questions that you can ask in your heart before the Lord. Lord, check my heart. Am I close to you or am I distant from you? God, am I responding to the gospel or am I, dis- am I distracted? Am I living as a herald of the gospel or am I living as a critic of the culture? Am I a participant with the angels singing and declaring God's praise and his glory? God, have I truly received your gift of the Lord Jesus Christ? Am I trusting the Lord Jesus Christ alone as my savior? Am I experiencing the peace of God in my life? God, amid the busyness of life, am I taking time to treasure and ponder the deep things of God? Am I eager to declare to others the truths about Jesus? 
Am I eager to participate in singing, in worship, in joining the angels, in singing from my heart back to you? Oh God, I pray for my brothers and sisters here in this room that this would be a transformative Advent season as we wait, as we prepare, as we renew our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who has come to be our Savior. May we find renewed joy in Him, renewed peace in Him. God, would you move among our families, move in our hearts, make us the singers of your praise, we pray. In the name of that Lord Jesus, amen.